corporate fraud works best in the shadows, behind corporate walls. How does the government bring these wrongdoers to justice? Whistleblowers. These are the stories of those who risk their careers to shine a light on allegations of fraud. Today on Fraud in America. In 2006, Congress passed legislation to establish the IRS Whistleblower Program, a program that provides protections and incentives for whistleblowers to come forward and expose massive tax fraud schemes. Since its inception, this program has recovered over $6 billion from non-compliant taxpayers, and whistleblowers have earned whistleblower rewards totaling over a billion dollars. 400 million of these recoveries were from tax sheets exposed by today's guest, Bradley Birkenfeld. Mr. Birkenfeld was a Swiss private banker working for UBS, the largest bank in the world. At the time, UBS and other Swiss banks was where the ultra-wealthy stashed their wealth outside of the view of the U.S. tax authorities. As we will discuss today, Mr. Birkenfeld decided to pull back the curtain on the secret world of Swiss banking. He brought his concerns to the U.S. Department of Justice, the U.S. Congress, and in time, the IRS through the IRS Whistleblower Program. Now, over $15 billion has now been recovered from U.S. taxpayers who were using secret Swiss bank accounts. This was the largest tax fraud scheme in history, and it all came to light because of Bradley Birkenfeld. Ultimately, however, only one person went to prison, and that was Mr. Birkenfeld. We will dive into all of this on today's show of Fraud in America. But first, a special thank you to the national whistleblower firm Getnik & Getnik, whose generous support has made this episode possible. Well, on today's episode of Fraud in America, we're going to speak with whistleblower Bradley C. Birkenfeld. As I said in the intro, he has made a huge impact on the financial world. He uh, shined a light for so many whistleblowers that are now going down the path that he lit uh, many, many years ago. And his story, if you want to see a full-length movie, maybe coming out soon or maybe in the future but until then he blessed us with two things an audible version of his book and the hard copy i recommend doing what i did i listened while reading the book so i got all my senses going here brad welcome to today's show well thank you so much for having me it's a pleasure to be here so brad i read your book when it first came out in 2016 and then when i talked to you not too long ago you said no 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 there there's a new book I'm like, what? There's a new book. He said, yeah, you want the Lucifer's Banker uncensored version. So what's in this book that wasn't in the first book? Why did you decide to update this book? Well, it, it, it came down to uh, the problem with the publisher. Nobody would publish my book in America, even though I had it uh, vetted by literary uh, law firms in New York, and it was ready to go, the manuscript, totally vetted and cleaned and so forth. The problem was the information that was in my first book, Lucifer's Banker, in 2016, 
The problem with that was, was that there was a lot of information with respect and truthful information with respect to the corruption of Hillary Clinton and the Obama administration and Obama himself. And what happened was I had to self-publish. But when I self-published, the problem with that was because nobody would publish the book in the amount of time to get it out before the election. In essence, the book had to come up before the election because it was relevant to the corruption that Hillary Clinton is well known for, and it's documented. It's factual. This is not conjecture. This is not opinion. I, I back it all up. So the problem, in essence, was the publisher got afraid when I was mentioning people like Leonard Lauder, who is a tax cheat at UBS, and Kevin Costner, the actor, who is a tax cheat at UBS. They threatened my publisher to um, sue them if they didn't remove their information. In fact, that's what happened. Even though I argued with my publisher, they pulled it out. But then four years later, I got a good publisher, Regnery Publishing, which is the book that you just uh, referenced here in this book. And they said, no, you've documented all this. This is all here. And it's, it's been vetted by lawyers. Um, we're putting this back in. So that's what's put back into the book, the information on Kevin Costner, Leonard Lauder, uh, UBS tax sheets in Geneva, Switzerland. And I put that in there for the very simple fact that it's true. Hmm. Well, it, it is a fascinating read. It really does flow nicely. Uh, as I said, I listened to it and I read it uh, and I can't stop talking about it. There's so much uh, in here. You know, I've been around for, for 20 years around whistleblowers and your story resonates on, on many different levels. Part of the story uh, that I found fascinating is your childhood and also your years where you went to college. Uh, can you talk about your why, you know your background? Why do you think that colored who you are today? Anything in there you want to highlight for people? Well, that's a very good question. And I think for your audience to understand who I am and, and why I did what I did, um, our history is generally in our childhood is probably a big part of that. Um, I was the youngest of three boys. I, I grew up in the South shore of Boston in a town called Hingham. Um, I had a good lifestyle. My, my father was a retired, uh, was a, re, a neurosurgeon and uh, my mom was a housewife and I had two older brothers. So you can imagine there was sibling rivalry. So competition, playing ice hockey and American football and all of that. And I had a good life and, and we had um, um, a good education. I went to a private school called Fair Academy in Braintree. Uh, and again, that was great to get around my peers and understand other kids outside of my little town called Hingham. After that, I then went to a private military school, the oldest private military school in America called Norwich University, uh, founded in 1819. And actually ROTC was founded at this military school. So what you could do, in fact, uh, the old idea of citizen soldiery, and that's really where it started with uh, General uh, Aldrin Partridge back in 1819, meaning that people should participate in the military because they're good citizens. And that's where ROTC was founded, literally. So you could go into any branch of the service there. And I love the mountains of Vermont. I love to hunt. I love to ski. And I was an outdoorsman kind of thing. So a, sort of a rugged kind of lifestyle. But the military was rigid as well because we had to do our military work. And I did my economic studies at the same time while I was there. So part of the, the, the through line I see with you is this kind of entrepreneurial spirit. Even in college, you, your, your stories about you know, getting D, uh, VCRs, if people remember those, and, and renting out uh, tapes 
which may or may not have been against the school rules. It, it, do you describe yourself as an entrepreneurial, kind of that entrepreneurial mindset? You know, my father was a well-to-do doctor, as I mentioned, and he could have just given us money, but that wasn't his mantra. His mantra was to go to school, work hard, and, and you know, maybe I'll meet you a third of the way or halfway on maybe a bicycle or a little mini bike or whatever it was. But he said, you got to work, whether you cut lawns, deliver newspapers, whatever it might be. And when I was a young kid, I thought, geez, the only way I'm going to make this work is if I really, you know, get to work out there. It wasn't like I could go get a PhD at age 12 or 14. <laughs> what I had to do was sort of go out and do something that was uh, brought in a little money. That's what I did. I cut lawns, as I said, and newspapers. And I used to then do brick walkways for people. I would, you know, put them together for them because when you're a hands-on type of guy, now this is back in the eighties, it was a, yeah. a, a totally different era as you're well aware. Um, and then when I was at um, private school, I had a good friend of mine whose father owned a company called C. Walsh Movers. And I joined the Teamsters and moved for the Teamsters Union Furniture. And, but it. I must tell you, I mean, this is in 1982. I was working there. I was getting paid $9 an hour. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So this yeah. is, I mean, this is 40 years ago. Yeah. Uh, so this was unheard of money for a summer job. And that's really where I started to make a lot of good money to actually have spending money at uh, when I went to university. And then when I was in university, I did that for one year and then I stopped working for the Teamsters. Um, so I saw a lot of different things and saw a lot of different people who were hardworking Americans that were just trying to make it work. And mm -hmm. I figured, look, I'm not the smartest kid in school, but I'm just hardworking and diligent. And I think yep. that's what we all need is a bit of that character. Um, everyone will tell you, oh, geez, if you go to Harvard, you know, you'll, you'll be super successful. Well, you know, not everyone can go to Harvard. Not everyone can afford Harvard. Mm -hmm. And so um, doing this job and going to military school, I thought it challenged me as a young man. And I thought it was very important to be a part of a society that says, hey, look, you're all the same. It doesn't mm. matter where you come from. So that's so interesting to me, right? You, you eventually go down the financial path, right? State Street and UBS. and uh, But you went to the military school. Did you have aspirations of going into the military when you went there? I, yeah. I did. And it's ironically, my uncle was a very famous general um, when he was uh, when, after World War II. He had fought in Iwo Jima and uh, Okinawa as a colonel, lost half of his troops. He would never talk to me about the war. And then he got promoted through the years um, after the war, World War II, and became the highest ranking general in the state of Connecticut, General E. Donald Walsh. Very interesting guy. He loved my brothers and I. We used to see them in Connecticut all the time. And his son went to the Coast Guard Academy. And I was always enamored with, and he was older than I was, but I was enamored with this idea like, wow, how, how regimented this was. What a commitment you gave to your country. Your friends got killed in war. I mean, it's quite powerful when you sit down and just touch upon the surface of what he went through yeah. and that to me was something that I, it was very invigorating and I thought you know I can always uh, get a job but university meant something to be able to go in the military and I wanted to be a pilot in the Air Force but unfortunately I was too tall I'm about six foot five mm -hmm. and they said Brad you're not going to be able to fit in the cockpit plus most of the pilot slots go to the guys at the Air Force Academy or the Naval Academy and you have to be an engineer and all of this and so that was out for me 
what I should have done actually is become a helicopter pilot in the army and just shipped over to from Air Force to Army Reserve uh, mm. ROTC. But I learned that a bit too late, unfortunately. You know, you just some things like that happen. And so I decided not to go in the military when I graduated. So what I did, in fact, do is said, OK, what are my options? And I, I was too late to go in the army to do the helicopter training, of course. So I went and applied to uh, a school in London. Uh, Richmond College in London because I was an econ major and my last semester of college I went to London and people are like well that's the party semester I'm like guys I, I can party my whole life I need to yeah. go and see London the problem was was once I got in I had gone I went there in January of 89 my last semester but as you know in October of 88 was yeah. Black Monday the, the yeah. stock market crash which really changed everything so when I got to London I couldn't even work for free because they said we're firing everyone. So it was an interesting time in my life, but I had a great time in London. I spent six months there and then came back. I graduated and then I continued working for my summer jobs at State Street in Boston. So the State Street story, I did not know, right? I thought I knew your story, right? Um, what happened to State Street and how did that color everything going forward? For some reason, that part of the story I really latched onto. It's, it's a very fascinating part. It actually really um, is the uh, commencement of my whistleblowing, if you will. Yeah. Um, I worked at State Street summers during college, two summers during my college, and I learned a lot about banking. And I was very fascinated by that. And I was around some very interesting people with MBAs, CFAs, PhDs. So as a young kid, you're like, wow, this is like better than school. And I was getting paid for it as well. Yeah. So ultimately, when I came back from London and I graduated, they said, geez, you, you can come in and have a full-time job. Obviously, low level, but I was like, wow, this is great. Yeah. And Foot in the door. Yeah. Yeah. I just made it happen. So long story short, I started voting international proxy votes for institutional pension plans. I was the first one in the world to vote them for pension plans because uh, State Street had large asset management and custody business. And we were actually controlling domestic voting of proxies for say IBM and Ford Motor and all this kind of thing, but not for the international ones. So I was put in charge of that project with an outside vendor and we did it. And I, it was quite exciting actually, voting in Italy, voting in Germany, voting in Japan. And then we consolidated our cash business, meaning when people do foreign exchange back before the euro, you needed to buy, say, French francs to buy French stocks or uh, Deutschmarks to buy German bonds and so forth because we were an international investment manager. And what I did was work with my boss to consolidate a trading desk on currencies and cash management. It was super successful. And it was just two of us. And we just we we had the synergies and we work with the computer guys and trading tickets and safeguards and delivery instructions of 40 currencies and so on and so forth. So it was very labor intensive, but it was it, it kept us sharp. And we were opening credit lines with the largest banks in the world, Swiss Bank Corp, Chase, Citibank. And this was really fascinating, which really ultimately got me my job at Credit Suisse. And I'll just jump forward to that because when I went yeah. to Switzerland, I went for an interview at Credit Suisse and I thought, geez, who do I know at Credit Suisse in America? And I knew one of the traders who really liked me. They all liked yeah. me because I opened up these multi-billion dollar credit lines <laughs> for trading. Yeah. And I asked him if he could just send a, uh, an email to the gentleman I was interviewing with, Dr. Rita Caligari in Geneva. And he did. And I got a contract the next week. So 
amazingly enough, that came back to bear fruit for me. So that was very nice. But um, yeah, that, that the uh, the Steve Jobs commencement speech, he talks about, you know, only looking backwards, do the, the dots line up, right? It was because of your time at State Street, which led to Credit Suisse, which kind of set you off on this path, right? But at the time, I'm sure it was a confusing time for you, right? Well, it was as a young guy, you, you think that banks work well. You think everything is efficient. Everyone is proper. I mean, these guys got degrees that most of them were men. There were some women, but they had, you know, MBAs and PhDs and CFAs and all these kinds of things. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, this, these people are really top of their game. And I'm just sort of sitting here soaking it all up. But what, what really bothered me was when I started to see the Ill illegality at State Street. And ironically, a very good friend of mine, Harry Markopoulos, who exposed Madoff, he's from Boston, and he's yep. a good friend and a whistleblower. Um, I told him about the currency um, uh, fixing they were doing at State Street, and, and I talk about it in my book. But later, he actually filed a claim against State Street, had much more data, yeah. and, and he got uh, a whistleblowing claim paid because State Street got fined, um, I think, around $540 million. So... That was 20 years way after I had started it. But what happened with that case, and I talk about it in my book, mm -hmm. um, in, in which you had some rogue guys in, in our department, senior guys, who um, screwed up some trades and then tried to cover it up through other trades, which is highly illegal. So a lot of people you know, run into things at work. They'll see things. Uh, they may lose their job. And they just go on, right? They're like, all right, I'm putting this behind me. I'm moving on to my next job. But you decide that, you know, maybe involve a clown at some point to, to not go quietly to Sioux State Street. Why? I mean, that seems to be your your pattern, right? You don't go quietly into the night as they hope. Why, why, why do you decide to fight back against these big banks? Even back in the early 1990s, you were doing this. Well, that's a very good point. And I, I felt that, um, again, I guess part of it from my military days, I realized what's right and wrong. And if you can't understand right and wrong, then you really have to check your pulse. But what I felt was I had, I had done nothing wrong, actually. Uh, if yeah. anything, I had great letters of recommendation from many of the colleagues, senior people at the bank who said I did a great thing, but they were afraid to challenge the senior management because it was at such a high level whether it's in politics or in a corporation, it's the same. You just, there's only so far you can go to push it to support someone, even though if they're right. So I figured I knew I was on an island by myself. So I had to be a big boy, roll up my sleeves and figure out, I'm not going quietly as you rightly point out. Mm -hmm. But what I did do was I said, let's, let's analyze this. Let's really look at this in a way in which we can attack them almost as um, in guerrilla warfare and war, if you will. Mm -hmm. And that way you're really untouchable because Sure, they can say what they want. They can pull job offers from me and blackball me without me proving it. And I'm a white single guy. I have no rights. Mm. Period. That's the ball game. So I said, okay, I went to the annual meeting because I was a shareholder at the time. I asked questions of the chairman, which he wouldn't answer. The media became my friend. I started uh, helping them and feeding them information, which I certainly had contacts who fed me information. And this was something to expose the wrongdoing of the institution and the individuals involved. Then, just to really go after them, there was a um, my former boss, Lisa Chewy, a Chinese woman, very nice woman, and uh, she was really she came back from maternity leave, and they didn't give her her job back, which is obviously illegal. Wow. But she sued and won. But what I did was then took the deposition of the CEO Nick Lapato at the time and 
hired a clown outside the bank to pass out the subpoena. <laughs> and it was all over uh, the, uh, the street at lunchtime. I mean, you can imagine it was high impact and they were furious. They were so furious. <laughs> and yeah, that, that's, yeah there's your, your story, the picture of the clown for, for those who are watching on video. So it's, it's in the book. It's interesting. Uh, yeah. Picture. And it was, and it was it was not well taken by the bank. The bank was furious, and I, I could care less. I'm already out of the bank, so I was just like, okay, you think it's funny? We'll see how fun it is on its shoe on the other foot. And I think this is the thing that people like is the underdog, you know, the David and Goliath kind of thing. And look, it, it, there's some jest there, yes, of course, but there was a serious tone there. The tone was yeah. stop breaking the law, and I'm going to hold you accountable to it. If you're going to fire me for doing nothing wrong, meaning that I'm not going to cover up for your wrongdoing then I'm certainly going to expose you for your wrongdoing. And that's just the way it is. Mm. So if, if I understand this right, because of this, you felt like it might be time to move across the pond. Uh, you couldn't really get another job maybe in Boston at the time because of this, right? It was really impossible. I had three job offers and all three were pulled. I had gone on vacation with my dad and I came back. And when I came back, they just pretty much said, no, no, that, that position has been filled. Even though my credentials were very strong, my letters of recommendation were strong, my educational background was strong and so forth. So, okay, I knew the game I was playing now. So I said, okay, I'm in the big boy league now. So you got to be, um, you know, toughen up here and, and deal with it. Just like we did in military school, just, mm -hmm. you know, just move on, you know, don't sit there and whine about it, do something about it. So I told my dad, look, I think I've got to go back to school and I'm going to pick a place where I think if I can go to school there, if I can look for a job at the same time, this would go dovetail quite nicely. He says, yeah, it's quite a good idea. And he supported it. My friends are like, well, you're going to Switzerland. You don't know anyone. I said, that's why I'm going. And that's exactly <laughs> and that's it. what you did. Yeah, that's what I did. And, uh, I, um, I took a student loan, which I paid back, by the way. I paid my student loan back to the U.S. government. Uh, you, yeah. know, so I, you know, if anyone's given out free money, they can certainly send me my money back, too, if they like. But um, so I went to school and I, I, I worked hard. And while I was in school, I, I had this interview with Credit Suisse, which I mentioned earlier, Dr. Rito Caligari, which I talked about in my book. Yeah. Very prestigious man, the head of the private bank in the French-speaking part of Switzerland. And he really enjoyed my, my credentials and my background and, and my approach. Certainly contacting Joe Gelsomino at Credit Suisse uh, um, First Boston uh, helped because he yeah. said, boy, that's a big dog you're meeting with. Yeah, I'll send him a message to say, look, we've dealt with this guy. This guy was solid and he was honest and this and that, which I didn't tell him what to write. He just wrote what he thought was um, accurate. And a week later, uh, not only did I have my contract from Credit Suisse, but they were applying for my work permit, which is wow. extremely hard to get in Switzerland. So yeah. this was really um, a blessing. And that's where my, my new career from investment banking in Boston to private banking in Switzerland uh, flourished. So private banking is the first time it's come up in this uh, conversation. Why Switzerland? and private banking can, can you explain what that means swiss bank accounts you hear about it in movies and read it in books but you know what does this exactly mean especially before your case <laughs> investment banking just to give people a background investment banking is like mergers and acquisitions and and ipos and that type of thing big money uh, business with huge corporations and that's pretty much investment banking in a nutshell 
Um, then you have retail banking, which is checking and savings. Everyone has that kind of business. But this is a, a very sort of an elite area called private banking. It's in the States, wealth management, private banking, that kind of thing. And it's for people who have a certain amount of wealth above a certain amount. And that is just for people to really do estate planning, to do tax efficient um, investments, um, whether you're in New Hampshire or Florida, where there's no state income tax, vis-a-vis, say, New York or California, that kind of thing. So you're really looking at it from a standpoint of how can you take someone's wealth and protect it and invest it properly? Switzerland, on the other hand, took it to a whole other dimension because in 1934, they passed something called the Swiss Bank Secrecy Act. And that was in conjunction with Adolf Hitler. It's a fascinating history. Mm. I did a lot of research on this. In, in essence, what happened was when the Third Reich under Hitler came to power in 1933, they said, if anyone moves a Fennec, um, any German money outside the country, you will be shot. The reason for that was they needed to keep the money within the country for the war effort, which was World War II. Okay, the Swiss countered a year later with Article 47 called the Swiss Bank Secrecy. That meant anyone who opens an account, anyone, we will never disclose their identity. We have attorney-client privilege. We have medical privilege. We have clergy privilege. This was Swiss bank secrecy privilege, but it was so advanced and so protected by the constitution of Switzerland. So this is their laws. In Switzerland, I operated under Swiss law. I was a Swiss resident. I paid Swiss taxes. I also filed my U.S. taxes, but I paid there. And I was um, an employee of a Swiss institution. So... What Swiss banking did was essentially give people the ability to open numbered accounts. Nobody would ask questions. And of course, you never paid income tax, capital gains tax, or inheritance tax. Now, that doesn't fit with, say, a U.S. system, but in Switzerland, that's the law. So you can see where the rubber hits the road here, where there is a conflict there. Now, I think what happened ultimately was that people understand that private banking in Switzerland was the best place to hide your money. You hide it from a tax man. You hide it from a spouse. You hide it from your business partner. Why? Because you may not trust them or you just want a nest egg. If something should blow up, maybe wherever you live, like financial blow up, you have a nest egg parked in another jurisdiction and maybe another currency and so on and so forth. So there's a diversification aspect to this. There's a multi-currency aspect to this. And there's a secrecy aspect, which a lot of people don't like to talk about their assets for mm-hmm. obvious reasons. You know, they might be kidnapped or people will extort money from them or who knows what. But the evasion of tax, not avoidance, but the evasion of tax was rampant in Switzerland. And, and that's ultimately what I blew the whistle on. Hmm. So when you were at Credit Suisse, uh, what was your primary role? I mean, obviously, they liked the fact that you were an American working for them. You understood Americans. Uh, you were able to travel to the United States freely. Um, can you talk a little bit about what your role was at both UBS and Credit Suisse when it comes to American clients? Certainly. Well, it first went from Credit Suisse to Barclays to UBS, all in Geneva. And it was an interesting sort of uh, road to hoe. Hmm. Um, Credit Suisse was my first um, step into uh, employment in Switzerland and a private bank. And it was quite interesting. Um, Ultimately, what I was supposed to do was work with Dr. Caligari as his right-hand man. And the question I I asked him, he says, well, I just have one question. He says, well, we're not here. We're here to interview you, Herr Birkenfeld, not for you to ask questions. I said, no disrespect, Dr. Caligari. But if I don't know your top three problems, 
you want to give me a contract and a work permit, I need to know what those are so I can rectify them and solve your problems. And yeah. that was really the, the impetus for the hiring. But um, so when I finally got my work permit, I, it took them about three months to get it. It takes a while. Um, he actually said that he is then going to be transferred to be the head of Asia in Singapore. And he wanted me to go with him. And I said, I really don't want to go. I didn't know Asia that well. And I wanted to be in Switzerland. So uh, ironically enough, I stayed in Switzerland, but I was inherited by someone else. So it was a little bit rocky, but I found someone that I needed to connect with. And I found the head of the Anglophone desk, which covered Canada, U.S., English-speaking Africa, Israel, and and that was a great guy to know, and he enjoyed my company, and I took him on a trip to Toronto, Boston, and Bermuda, and he was convinced, you're the guy. Two weeks later, he gets headhunted to Barclays in Geneva, <laughs> so I lose a second guy, and now I'm thinking, what am I going to do now? You know, I'm yeah. the lone man standing. Anyways, ultimately, what happened was I didn't have really clients at at Credit Suisse. So then he brought me, uh, his name was Olivier. He brought me over to Barclays and I covered literally all of Canada and the U.S. as the only guy in Switzerland for Barclays Bank. Nobody traveled wow. there. I said, why don't you guys travel? Yeah. What happened was all the client money would come through London and London would refer it down to Geneva and they'd just open the accounts but never travel. You know, 5 million pounds, 10 million pounds, 20 million pounds, all these accounts. And I'm like, you don't see the client? Are you crazy? Mm. So I literally had this running for about two years. And they let me just go all over the U.S. And I traveled all over the U.S. and saw existing clients and saw potential clients. Then they said, no more. We're not doing the U.S. And I said, that's strange. He says, but we want you to cover London. So I covered London and I went up to three of the branches in London. If you know London at all, I had um, Pall Mall, Sloan Square and Knightsbridge, probably the three most prestigious areas of London mm -hmm. for very, very wealthy clients, whether they were Indian or Arab or whatever, it didn't matter. I went up and dealt with the, the local Barclays representative and the clients as well. So that was another interesting component of that. And then what happened was a headhunter from London approached me and said, we need you, uh, we'd like to hire you for this bank in, um, in Geneva. And ultimately it was UBS. Yeah. And I negotiated the most incredible contract ever, <laughs> never been done before in the history of Switzerland. And I was the highest paid private banker in Switzerland because of it uh, at UBS. I was paid more than the head of the private bank even because I negotiated a performance-based bonus the more I make, hey, you guys make your bit, I make my bit. And that was the deal. They At first, they rejected and said, no, we would never do it. I said, find someone else then. I'm not coming. And uh, Because I didn't want it to be subjective. Mm -hmm. And what your audience has to understand is in the U.S., brokers generally get 50% of whatever they make and they have no salary. Okay, they can make a lot of money, these guys and girls. In Switzerland, they pay you a big salary, 300, 350,000. They pay all your expenses. First class travel, hotels, meals, all this stuff. And any event you want to go to in the world, you have carte blanche. Mm -hmm. At my level, I was a director of the bank. Yeah. So we really had the ability to do many, many interesting things with clients and so forth. But what happened was I said, no, my bonus, I don't want it to be 20, 30,000. I want it to be 20% of my revenue. I said, oh, we don't do that. I said, we'll find someone else. And ultimately they agreed to 18%. And then Barclays closed the business down. So when I moved over to UBS, I took all the business from Barclays with me 
as well as some other big, big dogs. And within three months, I brought in around $300 million. So I was making um, six digit uh, bonuses, which was unheard of. I mean, it was, they were furious at this, but I said, hey, it's contractual. You agree to it. You got to pay me. So, yeah, that's what happened. You mentioned Barclays decided to shut down the U.S., you know, what you're doing in the United States. And you said that at the time seemed strange. I believe you said something like that. What what, what was odd about that, that they would all of a sudden turn off the faucet? Well, the revenue was just off the chart. I mean, we yeah. were making millions in, in just, you know, every single day, whether you're doing trades, whether you're doing custody, whether you're doing uh, hedge funds. But setting up a trust, a, a foundation, a company. I mean, the money was just hand over fist. And, and clients requested this. This was what we did. This was private banking, wealth management. So I found it a bit strange that Barclays would all of a sudden just sort of turn off the spigot, as you rightly say. And I was trying to get an answer to it internally, and they were a little bit dodgy with it. So I just said, mm, this is looks like it's going to be a good time to get out of here. But then I started working. They said, look, we're going to move you. And well, you'll stay where you are, but you'll be able to go up to London and manage assets this way, meaning client prospecting and so forth, which was quite interesting because I had known London. I went to school there and I knew a lot of people there. And this was just a continuation of my journey, if you will. And it was a great journey because London was a great city at the time. We're talking uh, 1998, 99, 2000. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, money was flowing, the dot-com era and all of this stuff. But um, I met some interesting people at Barclays, not only in London, but in, in Geneva. And so, again, it was another learning process. As I always tell people, you learn and listen, not always talk. You know, this, this whole idea of education is not just in a book in a classroom. It's, it's actually in real life. And this was the real deal because I was traveling the world. And uh, I was going to Paris to Roland Garros. I was in Munich at Oktoberfest. I was down at Formula One in Monaco and all these things. And what this meant was you were like a concierge service, but you were a trusted advisor. And I never um, tried to sell my clients things that weren't appropriate. I always said, what happens if you die? Do you have life insurance? Who should we pay this money to if you should pass? And people are like, no one's asked us these questions before. I said, well, mm -hmm. this is life. And, and people do die, unfortunately. So I need to know rather than have this thing to sit in perpetuity, you need to tell us who gets this money. And we can literally direct it to whoever they had because this was offshore. So it was a whole different concept of you just probate a will in you know, uh, Texas or in Massachusetts or what have you. This was really a whole other dimension. So some, some people, some clients of ours had um, you know, maybe a mistress or kids from a second marriage or who knows what. And they said, no, we want the money to go there. And it was all legitimate, it was all legal. And that's just the way Switzerland operated. So. Again, from a diversification standpoint, from a secrecy standpoint, a lot of wealthy people like that. And that's what um, perpetuated this whole system of private banking in Switzerland. Mm. So Barclays is turning the spigot off. UBS is turning it on, I guess, full blast. They're paying you performance bonuses, right? Um, what was the job description for you at UBS? What did they tell you to do? <laughs> Well, this is it. Very interesting. One of the things I, I have to put onto my website is actually my, my contract where they hired me and I was the head of business development for North America. Um, mm -hmm. One, I was the only American on the desk. So I had a U.S. passport. Two, obviously I spoke fluent English. I didn't have sort of broken sort of the Schweizer Deutsch or uh, French or what have you. But, you know, I, I was a guy that could just blend in and say, 
You want to talk about politics? You want to talk about sports? You want to talk about social um, vacations anywhere in the country? I can do it because I grew up there and I traveled across the U.S. So there was a perfect fit there. There was no question whatsoever about who I was and what I was. I'm just coming back to visit friends or I'm going on holiday or what have you. You know, I wasn't lying on my immigration card. I didn't do that. But, you know, if I said I'm going on vacation, well, I can also do business too, can I? Or if I'm on business, I can also go on vacation. So it was that kind of thing. But the nice thing was for me as the head of business development, I had the free reign to come up with ideas. And I came up with a lot of ideas which were uh, un unconventional for them. Um, a lot of times I had things uh, that were so um, so uh, helpful for them. For instance, I was dealing with Nokia and Nokia used to buy companies in America, but they would use the shares. So I talked to UBS in New York and I worked with these guys very closely. He said, hey, guys, we could get you the whole pension plan of Nokia. And they couldn't believe that. Why is this kid from the private bank in Geneva coming to us here in downtown New York, you know, the headquarters and coming up with these ideas? I said, forget the guys in Switzerland. They won't get it. They don't understand. They don't think there's something for them. I see the 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 bilateral uh, connection between the U.S. and Switzerland where we can look at opportunities and share in the revenue and make these deals work. So it was things like that. And again, I came from an investment banking background. Mm -hmm. and the private banking, and that's where it came together. Another thing I tried to tell the bank was, for instance, if you work with me and you have 100 clients and I have 100 clients, your number 10 client, I don't need to know his name, he's in hotels, and my number two guy's in hotels. Why don't we find a buy-sell here, take a commission, and it's all in-house? And say, well, that's mm -hmm. not our business. I said, you don't understand. Our clients will love us that you sold your five hotels to my guy, and he paid you for it. We got paid for it. The bank gets paid. The clients are happy. What's wrong with that? So I called it entrepreneurial banking. And these mm -hmm. guys just couldn't get their arms around it. So I did it on my own. And I mm -hmm. used to just talk to guys in my office. And you know, I had Greek ship owners who were doing import-export or hotels or golf courses or who knows what, gambling. And I said, look, bring like minds together. But if you have it in a secrecy bubble in Switzerland where the money's already there, it's just changing hands. That's it. So anyways, this was what I started to realize that there was so much money. We're talking billions now. At yeah. UBS, we had 19,000 clients, $20 billion in assets, just bankable assets. That's not counting the jets, the yachts, the chalets, the safe deposit boxes, the artwork, the jewelry, and so forth. I mean, there was a lot of stuff rolling around here. So all I said was, why don't we find a better mousetrap and present it to the client? Mm -hmm. Because clients make money two ways. You either earn it or you inherit it. There's no mm -hmm. other way. Okay, maybe hit the lottery. Very rare, but okay, that's our third one. But those are the two real ways you'd inherit from your father and, and so on and so forth. So Or your mother or grandmother or what have you. So what I did was I took the approach, wait a minute, get close to the client in the so much as how can I make your business better? I'm not going to do it better than you are, but tell me how, what you're looking for. Oh, you're looking for a hotel to buy, or you're looking to sell your hotel or, or whatever it might be your business. And that was really the, the, the name of the game, but the bank just couldn't get their arms around it or didn't want to hear it. Oh, no, no. We just sell trades. We do foreign exchange and stock and bonds and hedge funds. I said, you're selling them a pile of shit. 
You know it and I know it and I won't put my name on that stuff. If the client wants it, I'll say, okay, the risk is this, the reward is this, but it's your call. I don't push it on you. And that's what the bank didn't like because the bank kept pushing all their garbage on clients. And this was really, um, this was really what I didn't like as well about the bank. Um, we had um, asset management portfolios where if you were under 3 million, you had to have just funds. You couldn't have individual stocks or so forth. Mm -hmm. But all those funds were UBS funds. Mm, right. So they're paying a custody fee, they're paying a management fee, and then they're paying the fee for the fund. I said, guys, you know, this is, I'm not selling this garbage. This is not correct. You know, this is wrong. No, but they have to be in funds. What, what, what the UBS funds are the only funds in the world. Mm, there's no right. other funds it's not wellington management or this or that and and that's something i did as well just as a side note um at the time are you familiar with sharia compliant products meaning um middle east folks who have they can't have interest and so forth they can't invest in yeah. mm. tobacco companies liquor companies okay. uh, pornography any of that stuff so they have something called sharia sharia law so I found in Boston, where I grew up, Wellington Management, who had an office in London, and I met with them. And I went to Credit Suisse when I was there at the time and said, we should really have a product for Middle East clients because I knew that we had billions of dollars sitting in cash. Now, the bank took the interest, not the client. Mm. And believe it or not, for your audience, back in the 70s during the uh, oil embargo, they had negative interest rates, meaning when you deposited money, they charged you. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. billions of dollars long right. story short what i did was i found this um, credit Suisse didn't want to do this product and i said but we could white label a product that exists and just sell it to our clients they'll do the marketing they'll do all the accounting everything and we'll make a nice fee and we can sell something to our clients that we don't have especially middle east clients who have a lot of money well i got to barclays went to bgi barclays global investors the investment bank in london i met with them and said who is this guy coming up here with this idea? I said, look, guys, if you can structure this, Wellington will work with you here in London and we can sell it in the private bank. Now, if you want to sell in the investment bank, that's fine too. But I need this product for some of my clients. It was done within a month. I have the letters to prove it. Everyone said, you did the best thing. They said, we need, need $5 million to start it. I called one client. He put in $5 million. Mm. Returns were like 25% annualized. I mean, wow. it was an amazing product, the Global Islamic um, Equity Fund by Wellington Management. So I, again, coming back to your point, you're very insightful. I was entrepreneurial. I was eager to do something, but I was trying to do the right thing within a system that was wrong, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a point in the book where you talk about this, uh, I call it a CYA memo, you know, we're, we're Nobody that works in private banking should be doing the following things. And as you're reading it, you're like, no, these are exactly the things they're telling us to do. <laughs> Can you talk about that moment? I mean, that was, I've had so many clients over the years who've had similar experiences. Can you talk about what went through your mind at that moment? <laughs> I will never forget that day. That day I was sitting at my desk and we had a group of about six people in our team here, a couple of girls, a couple of guys. And, you know, we, we managed assets for clients and some were assistants and some were more senior like myself and a junior guy came to me from one of the other desks on the floor and he said i gotta talk to you i said look i'm really busy what he says you gotta see this document i said what document i said where did you get this document show me on the computer as you know all banks say you have to know all the information on the intranet your internal computer system yep 
it's impossible. There's thousands of people. There's products, there's compliance, there's this, there's that. And it's just impossible. But this guy, he was always in the morning, we'd spend like an hour going through the intranet. Well, this thing popped up and he showed, he printed it and showed it to me. I said, show me on the computer. He showed it to me where it was and it affected our desk. It was the US uh, cross-border business. I said, thanks for showing me. Go back to your desk. I'll talk to you later. I appreciate you telling me. And they trusted me. Why? The only American, the guy who, who stood up for what he believed in. And I always helped my colleagues, whether it was with a, mm. a resume or a new job or explaining some investment um, principle or what have you. We were a team, just like we were in military school. Everyone helps everyone. So mm. I read this document. It's three pages. I print it out twice and put it in my briefcase. And I walked downstairs and I walked around the building. I lit a cigarette and I just smoked it. And I said, this business is over. Mm. This is done. I knew right then and there. In essence, this document, as you rightly said, contradicted everything they were telling us to do, but they never trained us on the document and they never told us about it. Mm. So I come back upstairs. I go into my boss's office. I said, what the hell is this? And we almost got in a fisticuff in his office. I grabbed him by the, the scruff of his collar. I said, this isn't funny. You're yeah. putting all these kids out here at risk. Now, these were all Swiss people. Most of them married with kids. So they had a UBS salary, a UBS mortgage, a UBS car loan, UBS school. Do you think they're going to say peep about UBS? No way, no day. And they're Swiss. I was the foreigner. I could care less. You know, bring it on. You're gonna, you want to play this game with me? Be my guest, but you're going to pay. And, you know, it's a big bank. It was the largest bank in the world at the time. Mm-hmm. And I just said, this is not funny. These kids, these kids don't get paid to take this risk. You're telling them to do X, but then you put this out there for a CYA for you guys and say, if we get caught, say, oh, you didn't read the memo. Oh, oh, oh I see where this train's going. And I, yeah. I stopped the train mid, midstream. So I went back to my desk and I thought about it. And I quickly typed up a memo and I sent it to legal and compliance, the head of them. And I'm a director of the bank now. I managed about $450, $500 million. So I want an answer. And I sent it inter-office as well. So it went email and inter-office, no answer. Mm. The next month I did it again, no answer. And that's when I knew these guys were covering up and didn't want to answer because they couldn't, because they knew they were caught red-handed and they were lying. So I started taking my own personal documents out of the bank. I didn't steal anything. I Mm -hmm. took what was given to me, which is my property. And I was building archives and I moved them out of Switzerland across the border into France at my friend's barn in case they raided my home. Oh, mm. I was thinking of every angle. Yeah. And then I ultimately resigned from the bank. And they said, why are you resigning? I said, please don't play that game with me. You know exactly why I'm resigning. I want an answer to that three-page memo. And I said, you're not going to get it. <laughs> you should have seen what was going on. I, I leaned across the table, a lot of vulgar language was used i gave them my credit cards my keys my ids i said i'm done but trust me i will get an answer to that three-page document whether you like it or not and i walked up the next thing i did was for about two weeks i was on something called gardening leave and for your audience what that means in switzerland is they pay you your full salary but you just stay at home or you go on holiday because they don't want you to cannibalize the accounts and take it to another bank, which I didn't want to do anyways. So I leave and I'm outside at home and I'm thinking, I'm still an employee of the bank. I'm being paid and I own shares to the company. So I sent my complaint to every member of the board of directors in Zurich by certified mail. I get phone calls from my friends at the bank saying, we got to meet 
at a private bar somewhere where we can't see you in public, but this shit's hitting the fan. I said, really, what's going on? We got to talk, we'll see you in person. So you can see, I started a nuclear bomb within UBS. And this is really the, the, the start of it. And, and they, they, they started it. I just was trying to get an answer, which they never gave. Then they called me in for an investigation. I came with my attorney to help them, tell them how they're breaking the law. I said, you really need me to tell you how you're breaking the law. That's great. Yeah. So when I talked to them, I told them about everything from A to Z. And then when I saw my friends two weeks later, they said, no, they didn't talk about any of that in the investigation. So they lied again and covered it up. So that I said, that's it. Game over. I'm done. So I picked up everything and I flew to Washington to get a law firm, which were all conflicted. At UBS had every major law firm on retainer, which mm -hmm. should be illegal. Um, and everyone should know it. Anyone who deals with UBS, invests in UBS, should understand that this bank is crooked and criminally corrupt from the core. So... I had to find a, a very small law firm in Washington, which was my downfall. It was the bad firm, but that's just the way it went. And I said, I want to expose these guys. These guys are breaking the law on such a magnitude. And people couldn't believe, like, what do you mean 19,000 clients, $20 billion? And that was one bank out of 140 banks in Geneva doing the same business. Wow. Those numbers, 19,000 and $20 billion. One bank, that's it's hard one bank, yeah. and then take it to the next level. So, let's just say it's yourself and you're wealthy in America, you're worth let's just say 20 million. Now, if you're rich enough to have 20 million in the states and you have five million in Switzerland, mm -hmm. you're, you're pretty rich on both sides of the pond here. Now, that's there for diversification, secrecy, hiding, whatever, evading tax. But the minimum account size was a million dollars, and we had billionaires and billionaires. CEOs, uh, politicians, um, actors and actresses, mm -hmm. the rich of the rich. So when I did what I did, do you think I had any chance, any chance of getting a fair shake? No, because Switzerland hated me. The Swiss banks hated me. UBS hated me. The U.S. government hated me. DOJ hated me. Treasury hated me. Why? I did your job. So what was the year? What, what I forget the timeline here. When you went to the uh, went to the United States, went to D.C., retained a law firm, and went to the Justice Department. What, what was that the was June of 07, 2007, and uh, it was it was a hostile meeting at DOJ. And I came in cold turkey. Like, yeah. look, I don't need. I asked for immunity; they wouldn't give it to me. I asked for a subpoena; they wouldn't give it to me. And in June of 07, that's when I went in and met with them. And Treasury was there. My lawyers were there at DOJ. We always got a fist of cuffs right, right there in, in the headquarters, in the meeting. Because this, these, is, a, this is an important part, uh, Brad. This is an important part of this story that I think a lot of people don't get. At this time, you weren't aware of the IRS whistleblower program or that you potentially could earn money by doing the right thing and, and reporting this, right? This was not in your mind at this moment, right? No, I had no idea that there was a whistleblowing law. I was just saying, I'm upset that the bank lied to me. I resigned. I was not fired from the bank. And that was in October of 2005. The whistleblowing yep. law wasn't passed till December 2006. Yes. So what am I, uh, I, I, in the future, I can uh, gauge what laws are going to be passed. Yeah. So you're absolutely correct. It wasn't for the money. It was doing the right thing. And I risked my life. I risked my reputation, my finances, everything to do the right thing. And 
Yeah. So Brad, I, I kicked off the show by giving everybody the numbers, right? The, the amount of money that the government recovered because of what you did and your whistleblower reward. And, and everybody tends to fixate on those numbers. The interesting thing about your story, and, and we'll get into some of the other stuff here in a second, but I want to put a pin in it since you brought it up. You certainly have the funds to go on with your life and not do anything else in this whistleblowing community, but you are. <laughs> you're, you're still very active. Uh, when you're in D.C., we meet. You, you are very active in encouraging other people to continue on the fight. Why is that so important to you? You wrote, you wrote a book. <laughs> you continue to, to highlight the concerns that you have here and, and importantly, encourage other people to step forward. Why, why do you do that? Well, the book, as well as the website, uh, luciferbanker.com, and I lecture as well around the world, and yep. most of the time for free. Um, my book in Romanian, The Money Goes to a Woman's Charity, where uh, battered women uh, need money. Uh, so I said, take, just take the money. Just take it all. I don't need the money. It's not the money. It's the, the concept that my grandfather was Romanian, so I had it done in Romanian, and I go and I lecture there. And people are just enamored by the story, the courage you have. Why would you come to Romania? Why would you do this book? Why would you do what you do, as you rightly ask? Here is really the crux of it. There's many people in this world who are successful in many different ways, whether it's a successful academia-wise, athletics-wise, just just pure business-wise, what have you, legal-wise, medical, who knows what. Mm -hmm. What I found was this was my calling. I, I, was, I stepped into this. I moved through investment banking to private banking. I saw some things. I reported it, tried to do the right thing for the, for the cause. If I don't tell this story, it dies on the vine, as we say. Mm -hmm. If I go out there and just add a little bit of sunshine to this and give people some hope that there are some good people there and there's a system that will rectify this and hold people accountable in, in this world, whether it's government or corporations, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. This way I'm motivating others to maybe come and say, hey, wait a minute, this guy did it. My friend works here or my cousin or who knows what. I'm just trying to motivate others to say, look, have the courage to come forward follow the roadmap. I didn't have a roadmap. I was just going, you know, right down the path and I was a, a bull in a china shop, but that was my character. That's always been my character. So now what I want to do is motivate others, come forward, do the right thing, work with me. I will help whistleblowers. I help them with financing. I help them with legal. I help them with uh, nonprofits. I help them with the media, uh, whatever it might be. Why? Because if we make society a better place, it's better for all of us. That's it. And I always say, Whistleblowing is an extension of law enforcement. Law enforcement doesn't want to accept whistleblowing because we make them look bad, because they haven't done their job. As I said before, maybe they're understaffed, maybe they're underbudgeted, but a lot of these guys just are part of the problem, not part of the solution. And that's what I saw with the UBS case, which went right up to the president of the United States. And and one of the things that really irritated me was, um, you know, I voted Democrat and Republican. I voted both sides. It doesn't matter to me. I vote for the person I think is going to be the best for the country. Now, the Senate committee I went to up on Capitol Hill, the Permanent mm -hmm. Subcommittee on Investigations, I testified for 10 hours there. To this day, they still won't give me my sworn testimony. So one of the takeaways a lot of people point to is, you know, this investigation led to uh, one person going to prison. Only one. And it was, and it was you. Yep. And, and that's exactly right. 
I was working there for four, four, four or five years. Some guys were working there 10, 20 years. I gave them the names. I gave them the whole network. I gave them the whole apparatus. Over 100 Swiss banks were fined as a result of me. Over $25 billion and counting, it's probably more now, uh, definitely more now, uh, has come back to the U.S. Treasury. Every U.S. client who wanted to come in and, and take the amnesty had to pay a 30% fine approximately of their high watermark of their uh, account and pay to the government and be anonymous and not go to jail. Well, what kind of justice system is that? So do you think the plumber or the bus driver or the guy who works at the aquarium can get that pass? Oh, that's right. He doesn't have the money to put in a Swiss bank account. So this is for the rich and powerful people who got this pass. This is wrong from the outset. So Brad, it's been, what are we going up on? 15 years, 15 years <laughs> since you came across the, uh, the pond to go to DC with these allegations. Yep. Um, would you do it again? I would. I wouldn't go to DOJ, though. And I tell everyone, and what we're seeing in this environment in Washington today with the DOJ, it's it's a corrupt organization where these, unfortunately, these civil servants, some civil servants are good. I'm not saying they're all bad, but these ones, particularly in the DOJ, are bad because they have a chip on their shoulder. They abuse their power. I would have gone to um, Treasury, IRS, and I should have had a better law firm. So the the, the point is, yes, I would do it, but I would have done it slightly different. And the other thing, too, is, is that I ultimately fired my first law firm and hired the gentleman who wrote the whistleblowing law, Dean Zerby, who worked for Senator Grassley. A lot of people poo-poo it and all that. Senator Grassley's whistleblowing law is the most successful law in U.S. history to bring funds back to the government, period. Nothing comes close. They've brought back over $65 billion dollars. Think about that, five billion. And the IRS, a week after my first book came out, I had uh, the book launch at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. And their press announcement, which never mentioned me, it's on my website, it says over 100,000 Americans became tax compliant. Think about that. We had 19,000 at the bank. Right. Where the other 81,000 come from? As a result of my work as a whistleblower, 100,000 people came back, became tax compliant. The money's left a Swiss bank and came back to a U.S. institution, got invested and taxed through perpetuity. We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars mm -hmm. because of one guy. And that's the guy you put in jail. Brad, I really appreciate you taking time. Uh, you know, the, the allegations outlined in your book are uh, I'm, I'm glad you went back and updated the book. I think there's a lot of stuff in here. Uh, you, you do, of course, names, but I, 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 it gives a little fuller understanding about some of the obstacles that you ran into. And my hope is that over the last 15 years, a lot of those obstacles and, and concerns, uh, a lot of the biases against whistleblowers that existed then um, maybe don't exist now at the level that they may have existed back then. You, you mentioned the False Claims Act, the success of the False Claims Act that Senator Grassley uh, helped pin in 1986. You know, the success of that and, of course, the success of your program or, or your case led, I think, directly to the SEC whistleblower program, the CFTC whistleblower program. Uh, your story, you mentioned Harry, uh, Harry Markopoulos, his story. All these things kind of dovetail, I think, now to make us in a, a better position than we were 15 years ago. My hope is that the next Bradley Birkenfeld 
finds a program that's more receptive. Um, and I know that's true. I know that a lot of change has happened over, over time. And that certainly is in large part because of what you experienced. So I, I hope that people hear that and they, they now identify uh, the good that came out of the bad that you went through. And, and that includes, I mean, you didn't hold anything back. You opened your book talking about going into prison in Pennsylvania. And yep. your, your story, uh, I, I appreciate that you didn't hold anything back. Well, I appreciate you having me on, and I, I really do enjoy talking to you and talking to your audience and, and love to lecture. I love to come and lecture to audiences, whether it's a university or corporation or what have you, even a government agency. And look, there's, there's some bad apples out there, which I, I, I did uh, identify, and, but there's some good apples out there, too. So let's be fair in that respect. But when the highest levels of government are involved in this type of thing, that's what's really uh, disheartening. And what I will continue to do is fight for the little guy. I will continue to push for whistleblowing and continue to just say, we need to get rid of waste, fraud, and corruption in our society. We need to eradicate waste, fraud, and corruption in our society. And working with yourself and those organizations, the NGOs that are really powerful, we need to uh, highlight attention to this problem. We need to get people to have the courage to come forward and also to assist them in this endeavor. And if we do that, we live in a better place. It's that simple. Well said. Well said. Uh, you're going to want to go over to Taxpayers Against Fraud and uh, make sure you sign up for our newsletter, taf.org, where you'll make sure uh, you get updates on our upcoming episodes, including this one. Uh, you also get a host of information about all kinds of things going on in the anti-fraud and whistleblowing community. Brad, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, and uh, thank you very much for having me. Look forward to doing it again. Hope you enjoyed today's episode of Fraud in America. If you believe you have witnessed fraud against the government or fraud on the financial markets, we encourage you to visit our website at taf.org, where you will find a directory of member attorneys who represent whistleblowers across the country. On our website, you will also find additional information about our nation's various whistleblower laws and programs and a way to donate to our organization as we step forward in spreading information about whistleblower programs. This episode was edited and produced by Rachel Brooks, and our theme song is by Connor Chaos. A big thank you to our TAF staff and researchers of James King, Emma Bass, Jackie DeMar, Kate Scanlon, Max Boldman. Fraud in America is a project of Taxpayers Against Fraud Education Fund. The opinions expressed on today's show belong solely to the guest and are not necessarily endorsed by the organization. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Fraud in America.